This is Africa Digest. Seventeen hundred hours Central African time on Africa Digest on Channel Africa, where we give you news from an African perspective. Hello, welcome to the program. My name is Spumelele Zondi, broadcasting to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. We are now on frequency nine six two five kilohertz in the thirty one meter band. If you are in Southern Africa, we are also on channelafrica.co.za if you want to stream us. I'm with Amanda Machaka, Tracy Pumkot, and Nedo Chimane. Your top stories. Amnesty International says AU member states must ensure that Egypt's chairmanship does not undermine the continental body's human rights mechanisms. Zimbabwean teachers end their strike action despite failure by the government to meet any of their demands. In economic news, International Credit Ratings Agency warns that South Africa's pie utility remains a significant risk to the country's fiscal strength. And in sports... South African rugby reportedly set to meet the South African Human Rights Commission after an alleged racial incident that occurred during a Springboks match. Yes, Amanda Machaka. Good evening. United Nations expert Diego Garcia Sayen says the suspension of Nigeria's most senior judge by President Muhammadu Buhari broke international human rights standards on independence of the judiciary and the separation of powers. Buhari, who was a military ruler in the 1980s and was voted into office in 2015, is hoping to win a new term in a presidential election scheduled to take place on Saturday. The chief justice could preside over any dispute over the election result. Nigeria's judiciary has helped resolve electoral disputes in past votes, some of which have been marred by violence and vote rigging. Kasia Sayan, who is mandated by the UN Human Rights Council to investigate legal and judicial independence, says dismissing charges without following legal procedures or offering a chance to contest the decision is incompatible with the independence of the judiciary. A health facility in Iran and shelters for internally displaced people have been burnt down, the latest in a series of attacks in northeast Nigeria's Bono state that have caused the largest wave of displacement since 2017. According to the International Committee of the Red Cross, ICRC, thousands of families caught in between the fighting have had to flee for their lives. The Bendan Health Facility was where two ICRC midwives who were killed in captivity last year once worked. ICRC is a Vincent Poet. The International Committee of the Red Cross is quite worried about the increase in violence in the Northeast when it comes to number of people that have been displaced. I mean, since the beginning of this year, uh, we have seen uh, the largest wave of people being displaced since at least 2017. We talk about over 60,000 people that have been displaced in various places. More than 30,000 people have reached my degree. Uh, where the ICRC is starting some uh, emergency operation, I mean, to try to alleviate the suffering, I mean, offering them a few, a few stuff for them to cope with the situation. Zimbabwean Vice President Constantino Chiwenga is being treated in India for a minor ailment. The announcement was made by Information Deputy Minister Energy Mutodi. Days after a local news website reported that the retired general had gone to India due to failing health, 
The health of 60-year-old Chiwenga is closely followed in Zimbabwe because is widely seen as the power behind President Emerson Nangagwa and the front-runner to succeed him. He led the coup that ousted long-time ruler Robert Mugabe in 2017. The United Nations is urging the warring parties in Yemen to give it urgent access to a vast store of grain that is desperately needed in a country where millions are threatened by famine. The BBC's Ellen Johnston reports. The UN is appealing to Yemen's warring parties to give it urgent access to a flour mill in the port of Hodeida. The site lies on the front lines and it's been out of reach for five months. The mill's store has enough grain to feed more than 3.5 million people for a month. But the UN says there's now a risk that this food will just rot away. The Yemeni government and its Houthi rebel opponents have been trying to finalise an agreement under which their forces would withdraw from her data. And finally, South African President Cyril Ramaphosa has congratulated the Soweto Gospel Choir for their win at this year's Grammy Awards. The group won the Best World Music Album of the Ceremony, rather at the ceremony in Los Angeles in the U.S. This is their third win and its fifth nomination in the same category. The award-winning album, Freedom, was recorded in June 2018 as part of the group's tribute to the 100 years of Mandela celebrations. The album features a selection of struggle songs. On his Twitter page, Ramaphosa thanked the group for telling the South African story. For Channel Africa News, I'm Amanda Machaga. Thank you very much, Amanda. Your time is 17.06 Central African Time right here on Africa Digest on Channel Africa as we continue to give you news from an African perspective. Now, Amnesty International says that member states of the African Union must ensure that Egypt's chairmanship does not undermine the continental body's human rights mechanisms. President Abdel Fattah el-Sisi of Egypt assumed the position of the chairperson of the African Union during its 32nd ordinary session in Addis Ababa in Ethiopia. Amnesty says during his time in power, President Abdel Fattah el-Sisi has demonstrated a shocking contempt for human rights and under his leadership, the country has undergone a catastrophic decline in rights and freedoms. More from Amnesty's Africa Regional Advocacy Coordinator, Jeffrey Began. We are calling on AU member states, uh, as you have correctly indicated, to ensure that Egypt, during his tenure as the chairperson of the African Union, does not undermine the continental body's human rights mechanism, especially the African Commission on Human and People's Rights. Our call is based on the fact that since 2015, Egypt has orchestrated vicious and sustained political attacks against the African Commission, which is the main mechanism that is mandated by the African Union to protect human and people's rights. These vicious attacks have been based on what Egypt sees as scrutiny of human rights record at home. Since uh, in the last two years or so, there's been about 60 cases filed against Egypt alleging serious human rights violations, prompting the African Commission to reach the conclusion that there are massive human rights uh, violations in Egypt. It is for this reason that Egypt has uh, orchestrated these attacks against the African Commission in a bid to undermine it. 
And we are therefore calling on African Union member states to ensure that as the chairperson of the African Union, Egypt does not uh, undermine these institutions. Instead, it safeguards and protects their independence and autonomy. And what is it about the president, uh, Abdel Fattah al-Sisi, particularly that you're concerned with? We are concerned with uh, the government of President Abdel Fattah al-Sisi, mainly because it has, as you also correctly indicated, demonstrated a shocking contempt for human rights since he came into power. Under his leadership, the country has undergone a serious decline of human rights and freedoms. In particular, there have been serious violations of freedom of expression. Many human rights defenders in the country are not allowed to freely express their opinion. There has been mass killings of protesters uh, in the last few years. There has been enforced disappearances, and even more seriously, there's been hundreds of death sentences handed out against uh, people who are uh, exercising their right. We are therefore concerned that his government has not has demonstrated what we term as a shocking contempt uh, for human rights. We are calling on Abdel Sisi as the chairperson of this year 2018 of the African Union to lead from the front and to respect the values and the principles that underpin the African Union, which includes respect for human rights. Right. Tell us more about that. Um, you've called on Egypt to ratify key African Union human rights treaties. Uh, can you tell us more about that? Yes. So as the leader of African Union this year, one of the ways that Egypt can lead from the front is to ratify key human rights instruments that has been adopted by the African Union. One of those is the Maputo Protocol on the Rights of Women in Africa. Uh, there is serious human rights violations concerning women's rights in Egypt, and by committing to ratify this protocol, Egypt will be moving a fast step in ensuring the rights of women are protected in Africa. Secondly, we are also calling on Egypt to ratify the protocol on the establishment of the African Court on Human and People's Rights. By ratifying this treaty, Egypt will ensure that its citizens and residents within the country are able to file cases before the African Court on Human and People's Rights. And we also use this opportunity to call on Egypt not just to ratify the protocol, but to make a declaration that will allow individuals and non-governmental organizations to file cases at the African Court on Human and People's Rights. And then finally, we are also asking the uh, government of Egypt to ratify the African Charter on Democracy, Elections and Governance to ensure that elections are conducted according to AU principles and that its governance and democracy are according to the principles that have been set out by the African Union. That's Amnesty International's Africa Regional Advocacy Coordinator, Jeffrey Biggin, on the line from Nairobi in Kenya to Kakesho Sikhetelo. The African Union is calling in member states to give more attention to more investment in health in the continent. Leaders meeting at the African Union Summit in Ethiopia have discussed how to boost finance for the sector. And they say private investors should be encouraged to commit more funding. Statistics show that more than half of Africa's population currently lacks access to essential health services and millions die every year from commonly preventable diseases. Here's Coletta Wanjuri. Statistics show that only two out of the 55 African Union member states currently meet the target set by the African Union of dedicating at least 15% of government's budget to health. African heads of state and government meeting in Ethiopia's capital, Addis Ababa, in the sidelines of their AU summit, discussed how they can improve the reach of health services to their own citizens. President Paul Kagame of Rwanda said the continent needs to work together in order to attract affordable deals for the health sector in the continent. Governments should surely be willing and able to increase domestic investment in healthcare. 
A good indicator of this is the progress we have made towards securing the financial health of the African Union and mobilizing our own resources for joint priorities such as the Peace Fund. We should be the first ones to contribute to efforts that directly benefit our people. Second, we will get better results if we work together as a continent, for example, cheaper prices by negotiating and procuring as a bloc. President Uhuru Kenyatta of Kenya explained that his country, Kenya, has outlined provision of better health care as a priority. You can say, well, we'll talk about somebody who's unemployed, somebody who lives in poverty. But when one family member falls sick, chances are an entire family will sink into poverty. Mm -hmm. And this was one of the main reasons why we decided that we were going to make healthcare, an investment in healthcare, a central theme through what we are calling our universal healthcare provision or affordable healthcare provision, where we as a government are contributing, but also partnering with our development partners into an insurance scheme that facilitates our people to access healthcare. We are now currently piloting that project. Mm -hmm. And this project, we are not just piloting in government uh, clinics, health centers, and hospitals, but we are also partnering with the religious sector. We are also partnering with private sector. International financiers of the health sector in Africa also attended the meeting and supported the continent's vision for domestic resource mobilization, specifically for the health sector. Bill Gates is the chairman of the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation and has for decades supported various African countries access health services and medicine. You've already heard some of the figures that the, despite this progress, the health burden here uh, is much higher. Uh, malnutrition rates are uh, over uh, 40%. So it's not just the deaths, it's also the survivors who, as we invest more in education, they're not able to achieve their potential unless we make the disease burden and the malnutrition burden uh, dramatically less. Musa Faki Muhammad, the AU Commission Chairperson, says the AU depends on its member states to increase strategic partnerships in order to ensure universal health care provision for all citizens. The double burden of, of, of infectious and non-communicable diseases. Women and children especially bear the brunt of this disease. Therefore, investment in building resilient health systems and infrastructures to deliver effective and efficient healthcare services remain a key priority. And the United Nations has also added its voice on the need for the continent to immediately provide better health care services to its citizens. Antonio Guterres is the United Nations Secretary General. For my part, last September, I launched a strategy for financing the 2030 Agenda for Sustainable Development and I will continue pressing to scale up public and private finance and investment flows in the health arena. The meeting also noted that there is need for the private sector in Africa to be encouraged to invest more in the health system with government committing to put enabling policies that will ease their operations if they decide to invest in sections like setting up pharmaceutical companies within the continent. Koleto Njohi, Channel Africa Radio in Ethiopia's capital, Addis Ababa.
Across the globe, every second, there's always a breaking story. Kultranjoy for Channel Africa Radio in Ethiopia's capital, Addis Ababa. Reporting for Channel Africa, I am Hilda Kekeloa in Zambia. Our cutting edge and hard-hitting journalism leaves no stone unturned, giving you the whole picture every time. George Muhango, Channel Africa, Blantyre. Reporting for Channel Africa, this is Moki Kinzeka. In Yawundi. From an African perspective, listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese, and Chinyanja, informing the world about Africa. Join us every day and know what is happening around you. Channel Africa. It is 17.16 Central African Time right here on Africa Digest on Channel Africa. Don't forget to email us. We are on info at channelafrica.co.za. That is info at channelafrica.co.za. Now, today marks 29 years since the release of the first democratically elected black South African president, Nelson Mandela, from prison. On this day in 1990, Mandela walked out of prison and embarked on a decade of historic endeavor. These were years of peacemaking, negotiating, reckoning, and transforming. South Africa's uh, transition from apartheid ended uh, formally on the 27th of April in 1994 with the first democratic uh, general election. While South Africans should still celebrate the country's break from colonial apartheid, the Nelson Mandela Foundation argues that a quarter of a century of democracy has not delivered the promise that was made in the 1990s. More from the Director of Archive and Dialogue at the Nelson Mandela Foundation, Vern Harris. Well, the significance of the day has to do with the release of Nelson Mandela from prison and the inauguration of the formal transition from apartheid to democracy. Uh, For the Nelson Mandela Foundation, it's always a reminder of the unfinished business that we've started on a path, but there's still lots of work to be done. And in terms of Madiba's vision for our country, we're still very far from realizing it. So you would agree that the country has made inroads in reconciling and uniting, but more still needs to be done? Well, I think we are arguing now that the reconciliation project of the 1990s is in deep trouble. And that is fundamentally because the promises that were made uh, have not been fulfilled and why it's important then for us to revisit uh, the undertakings made in the 1990s and indeed the promises that are enshrined in the Constitution is that it gives us a measure of uh, how much work we need to do. Right now the, the focus is on cleaning up corruption, fixing broken institutions, but ultimately we need to fundamentally transform our society. What would you say are still some of the challenges that we face as a country that needs urgent attention? Well, the challenges facing us are are, are so many and complex, but certainly as we look at our realities right now, uh, land is of fundamental importance. And it's not just land, it's the broader question of property. That has to be addressed. Um, our education system, uh, it's, it's broken and it needs to be fixed. Uh, we can look back at the 1990s. That's a good example, actually, of how, uh, with all the good intentions in the world, um, often inappropriate strategies 
uh, and models, often taken from the north rather than elsewhere in Africa or from the global south, were implemented. The other big one for us is, is uh, early childhood development. Too many South Africans uh, reach six years of age and they're already hopeless. Um, how can you have one in four six-year-olds suffering from effectively malnutrition? So we've got to fix these fundamental things and as quickly as possible. What would you say are some of the lessons that young ones should learn or should take from collaborations such as this ones that we are marking today? You know, I hope that, that young people get it right in terms of uh, relating to my generation, a much older generation, where we've done too much celebrating of, of anniversaries without delivering on the substance of what those anniversaries symbolize. And so I'm hoping that young people will be motivated, will be inspired to do the work that we've just been talking about. It is 17.20 Central African time right here on Africa Digest on Channel Africa. That was Vern Harris. He is the Director of Archive and Dialogue at the Nelson Mandela Foundation. In conversation there with my colleague Ndlandla Matlangu. If you want to find us on Twitter, we are on Channel Africa 1. That's numerical 1. That's Channel Africa 1 on Twitter. You can also email us. It's info at channelafrica.co.za. Now, Human Rights Watch is urging the United Nations to investigate alleged human rights violations by Sudan security forces against anti-government protesters. The rights organization has released a shocking video which shows what appears to be government forces driving around in armed vehicles, shooting bullets and tear-gassing government forces, driving rather and tear guessing unarmed protesters and brutally beating protesters as well as bystanders with sticks since mid-december protesters have taken to the streets in towns and cities across the country to protest bread price increases calling on president omar al-bashir in power for 29 years to step down and to discuss this further, we're now joined on the line by Leila Matam, who's the Deputy Director at Human Rights Watch, responsible for monitoring the United Nations on the line from Geneva in Switzerland. Hello and thank you very much for joining us. Thank you very much for having me. It started as a protest over rising bread prices, which pretty much um, doubled overnight. But it became more than that, did it not? No, that's, that's absolutely right. I mean, I think it's important to remember that these are not the first protests we've seen in Sudan. Over the past few years, we've seen periodic uh, protests in the country, and we've seen the same brutal crackdown on all of these protests. But this one, again, has been a particularly bloody one. As you said, bystanders have been beaten, protesters have been beaten, tear gas has been fired, but also live ammunition, live bullets have been fired, not only in the air, but directly at protesters in the street, resulting in at least... 50 deaths to date. And it's been quite long, especially for Sudan, because um, there hasn't really been a protest that's lasted for, what, almost three months now? That's right. It's, it's, it's very long. It started in, in December and it's still ongoing and it looks like it's not about to, to abate. And the violent crackdown from the government side, from the Sudanese forces, also does not look like it's about to end. So that's why it's extremely important that the international community starts to pay real attention to this situation and make it clear that not only are these violations unacceptable, but that they need to be stopped and investigated.
Uh, Sudanese themselves have shared various videos online. They've been circulating um, on WhatsApp and other um, online channels, uh, platforms, that is. Um, why do you think it is that the international community has pretty much not paid as much attention to this particular crisis as opposed to other ones? I think, to be to be frank, that there is a unacceptable uh, fatigue when it comes to some of these chronic human rights situations, like in Sudan. You know, so despite the fact that the situation in terms of human rights certainly has not improved, um, the international community, many of the most powerful actors, ha- have turned a blind eye. And I think that there are, uh, you know, interests at play that should not, but do sometimes trump human rights concerns, uh, whether they be economic interests, whether it be interests related to help fight terror whether it's interests related to uh, curbing migration from coming to Europe uh, and many other variables that really shouldn't matter when it comes to to standing for, for justice and accountability. Now, um, on social media, there can be a lot of what some would term fake news um, and you are worried about one particular video coming from Sudan. What's happening in the video and have you verified the authenticity of that video? Right. So I think it's important to remember that what we see in, in these, uh, this footage is only some of the, of the many uh, violations that have occurred over the past couple of months. This is footage that has been received by Human Rights, uh, Human Rights Watch from various sources and has been independently verified by our researchers. And of course, um, if you follow Sudan closely, you will see that this footage very much um, matches up with a lot of the events that we've seen reported by civil society and actors on the ground. Um, we've also heard about um, uh, killings in Sudan, um, uh, shootings by um, uh, members of government. Are those uh, true? Have you heard about that? Well, again, I mean, what we have, have documented is the uh, killing of, you know, at least uh, 50 people that have died, mostly from, from bullet wounds. Um, people have been shot at the protest. We've also seen, of course, that there's been attacks at hospitals as well, inside hospital uh, treatment rooms um, where, you know, medical personnel that have been trying to treat those wounded in protests have prevented from, been prevented from doing so. So, you know, both in the streets and off the streets, we're seeing these types of violations that are resulting in, in death. Um, you're saying the United Nations Human Rights Council should urgently intervene. Have you had engagement with the council? So the, the Human Rights Council does have a long history of, of dealing with the human rights situation in Sudan, but unfortunately not adequately. And we've seen that over the past few years, they've actually been weakening their attention to the situation rather than, than strengthening it. And certainly the, their lack of attention has not been in any way correlated with an improvement to the situation on the ground, which of course we find um, completely uh, unacceptable. So I think, in our view, these protests are yet another sign that the international community has prematurely been weakening its attention to the situation. And so we think the Human Rights Council, being the world's premier human rights body, this is the moment for them to wake up and take real action to make sure that there is an independent investigation into these most recent violations. Have you had engagement with them? Have you contacted them? Have you written to them? Certainly, as Human Rights Watch, we engage daily with the Human Rights Council. We think it's an important body that has been able to achieve real um, real action and take real initiative on many human rights situations. And we wanted to do the same on Sudan. We've seen, of course, how many countries like the U.S., the U.K., Norway, Canada, the U.N. Secretary General, the High Commissioner for Human Rights, and many others have condemned the violations that are ongoing. And we are, of course, working here in Geneva and elsewhere uh, to urge them and to hope to see from them some action at their session that they will hold in Geneva in March this year.
Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, Sudanese authorities, um, have you spoken to them about this um, a particular video? Um, I have personally not spoken to the Sudanese authorities about this video. Um, I think, you know, it's important to remember that when we look at the violations that are happening now, they're happening because of a government that has, well, at least partially because of a government that has been deeply emboldened to act in the way that it's been acting. Um, Sudan has not shown any real political will to investigate violations that take place or to stop them. So this is a government that, you know, feels very empowered and emboldened to continue the kind of violations that, that we've documented. And how easy is it to um, get footage out of Sudan? It's obviously a very uh, volatile situation, and it's it's challenging to document closely human rights violations in a context where free media is repressed, where news outlets get shut or blocked, where it's difficult even for independent actors to have access, and certainly not unhindered access. So, you know, we, we rely on our best research practices to corroborate and verify the footage that we've received and to document human rights violations from reliable sources, both inside and outside Sudan. And the internet gets blocked too during this protest, does it not? I'm not very familiar with that, um, but we have heard of instances certainly in this, uh, in this round of protests where that has happened. All right, sure. Thank you. Excellent. Thank you very much. That is Leila Mata, who's the Deputy Director at Human Rights Watch. She's responsible for monitoring the United Nations, and she was on the line from Geneva in Switzerland. <laughs> Bari, etise, mache, mingabu, baoni, kedu, mbote, ndemne, bonsoir. Join me, Richard Mwamba, for a music show on Channel Africa called Africa in Song every Saturday and Sunday from 18 to 20 hours Central African time. Africa in Song, Saturday and Sunday from 18 to 20 hours Central African time. It is 17.30 Central African Time, right here on Africa Digest on Channel Africa as we continue to give you news from an African perspective. It's your news headlines now. Here's Amanda Machaka. Thank you, Spumelele. Good evening. Ivorian President Alassane Ouattara says justice must be served to the victims of the 2010 post-election violence. The United Nations says the suspension of Nigeria's chief judge breaches human rights and Zimbabwe officially announces that Vice President Constantino Chiwenga is receiving treatment in India following speculation about his health. Those are news headlines.
It is 17.31 Central African time. Now, Zimbabwean teachers have ended their strike action. This is despite the failure by the government to meet any of their demands. Teachers went on strike two weeks ago while demanding a salary review by more than 350% and better working conditions. Zimbabwean teachers constitute the majority of the entire civil service but have faced stiff resistance and intimidation from government. They have agreed to report back to work on Monday morning while awaiting further instructions. Here's Simon Machema. Zimbabwean teachers who constitute the majority of the entire civil service have called off the strike which started two weeks ago. According to various teachers' unions, government is employing a divide-and-rule tactic such that the negotiations have now been compromised. While teachers were demanding a salary review equal to more than 350%, government offered just 20%. Teachers are also demanding an increment of the transport and housing allowances, which have since been eroded by inflation since October last year. Fuel prices went up recently, triggering a sharp price increase of all basic goods in the country, worsening the plight of teachers. Government is yet to meet all the teachers' demands, but the strike has been called off until further notice, Obed Masaraure, leader of the Amalgamated Rural Teachers Association, said. Zimbabwe Teachers Association Zimta General Secretary Tapson Gununu Sibanda admitted the strike has indeed been called off, although his reasons were different from those proffered by Masara Ure. Sibanda explained that strikes by nature are not permanent and are used to send messages. On intimidation, Zimta alleges armed soldiers have been deployed to various schools, especially in Matebelelen provinces. While reports of actual assaults and harassment are yet to take place, Tapson's Banda said the mere presence of soldiers in schools is in itself a gross human rights violation.
On one hand, rural teachers who in this case are the worst affected by the crumbling economy allege ZANU-PF youths have been going to rural schools and physically abusing leaders of the strike. Most of the union leaders have been affected, Obed Masaraure told Channel Africa. That was Obed Masaraore, General Secretary of the Amalgamated Rural Teachers Association, speaking to Channel Africa on the phone. In Harare, Zimbabwe, for Channel Africa, this is Simon Muchemwa. It is 17.36 Central African time. And now in 2018, when 106 girls were released by the terror group Boko Haram in Dabchin after a negotiated settlement between the group and the Nigerian government following the abduction of the girls earlier on, parents of the only Christian girl among the victims were given assurance by the administration of Muhammad Buhari that Leah Sharibu would soon regain her freedom too. But 12 months later, Leah's parents are yet to have their 14-year-old daughter back with them. Channel Africa's correspondent in Lagos, Collins Atohangbe has this one. I call on everyone to mount pressure upon the federal government to do this act, if necessary, to organize a peaceful demonstration in support of the release of Leah Sharibu. The voice of an agonizing social activist, Niyia Borishade, calling for concerted social mobilization to compel the Nigerian government to make sure that Leah Sharibu, the teenage girl from Dabchi, still in the stronghold of Boko Haram for refusing to renounce her faith in Christ is released from captivity. It's one year since the Dabshi hostage taken by Boko Haram from a government school in Yobe State, Northern Nigeria. But one out of the total 109 girls that were abducted by the terror group, Leah Sharibu, is still being held captive because she refused to accept to be converted to Islam from her Christian faith. When the incident occurred on the 18th of February 2018 and the administration of Muhammad Buhari negotiated and had the girls but one released, many Nigerians felt it was not right that Leah should be held back by the group against her will while some others took exception to government's failure to have the 14-year-old released. The expression fell short of being called a religious play because of the social implication in a society where religion has caused a lot of disturbances in the past. But with each passing day, it has become clear that against the promise by Buhari administration, the vehicle of freedom has either been too slow or has stopped moving altogether. The parents of Leah are so displeased and filled with emotions for their word and concerned individuals and groups have come out with a plea for her release. Gloria Pardu, speaking for the family of Miss Sharibu, says Leah's refusal to renounce her Christian faith is the reason she's still being held captive. Leah is in captivity because she refused to renounce her faith. That is why we have decided to call for a briefing that every well-meaning person Please do not forget Leah in captivity. A foreign member of the Leah Foundation, an organization that was set up by a group of people to pursue the cause of freedom for Leah Sharibu, Rebecca Lubert, has sent out a call to her home government to please join with other international bodies to help free Leah. I also appeal to the government of the U.S. 
and other world governments. I plead with you to please act, take action to free Leah and other girls who are in captivity now. Gideon Para Malam, a friend of the family, says it's disheartening that politicians are going about their campaign without noting and nothing to say about Leah's freedom. He says the presidential candidates especially should tell Nigerians what their plans are about the teenagers' freedom. We would love to hear from all the presidential candidates what exactly are you planning to bring Leah to freedom. The silence from almost all the presidential candidates concerning Leah and others in captivity is not encouraging. With the issue taking the front burner in the media with insinuation that Leah Sharibu may probably have been killed by her captors, the Minister for Information, Lai Mohammed, says this is not far from the machination of opposition politicians. I think it's part of the opposition's uh, strategies to throw everything at this administration and at this uh, president. I think every day they're realizing the hopelessness of their position. Every day they are amazed by the support Chaplain is receiving from uh, every part of the country and they've decided that they are going to spread falsehood, inflame passion, make this election a Muslim Christian affair, make this election a north-southern affair. But people are not listening to them. But to come back to the question, it's absolute fake news. There's nothing like that. Well, that is not the view of some Nigerian activists who have been looking up to government to match words with action to put hope back in the life of Leah Sharibu and her family. Niyia Borushade is a social activist. He wants the president to personally deal with the issue for the well-being of a child of principle. Politics and political campaign has not been intensified. However, no one has remembered the plight of this young lady who is in captivity of Boko Haram people. We now call upon the federal government that government should do whatever in their capacity to ensure that this young lady, Leah Sharif, is released from detention of Boko Haram. This is a lady of principle. She's not like a politician who are crossing from one party to another without principle, without any core political ideology. But this is someone that has principle. Even in the face of oppression, in the face of death, she refused to renounce her faith. She refused to renounce what she believed in. It's now incumbent upon the president to do everything with his power to ensure that this young lady is released. I call upon the president himself to use whatever it takes. If this is the only act that the president can perform before the election, it is worthwhile. We have to consider this young lady could be anybody's daughter. It could be president's daughter as well. That is why the president must do everything within his power to ensure that Leah Sharibu is released. Presidential election we hold on the 18th of February, the same day and month in 2018, that Leah Sharibu lost her freedom to a terror gang in circumstances that leaves one in doubt of government's sincerity on the promise to seek her release. Social media is agog with speculation that she may have been killed altogether. But the loudest music right now is the electioneering campaign, even as the Sharibus live in despair of the non-release of their innocent girl who will be marking her 15th birthday anniversary in captivity. From Lagos, Nigeria, I am Collins Nosato Ingwe for Channel Africa News. 
This is Channel Africa, South Africa's international radio station on shortwave internet and satellite. Listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese and Chinyanja. Nam, kwenye line ya simu hivi sasa najiunga moja kwa moja. Farafina. Farafina. Terre de soleil. Kia makande embalelwa kina Miriam Está na companhia do serviço em língua portuguesa do canal África, a voz Renascença Africana que transmite a partir dos seus estudos centrais de Auckland Park, cidade de Johannesburg, África do Sul. Sochitika mu África. Informing the world about Africa, Channel Africa, bringing you the African perspective. Bari etise mache mingabo baoni kedu mbote ndemne bonsoir join me Richard Mwamba for a music show on Channel Africa called Africa in Song every Saturday and Sunday from 18 to 20 hours Central African time Africa in Song Saturday and Sunday from 18 to 20 hours Central African time It is 17.44 Central African Time right here on Africa Digest on Channel Africa as we continue to give you news from an African perspective. Well, 17.45 now. Here's Tracy Boomgott with your economic news. Thank you. International Credit Rating Agency Moody's has warned that South Africa's power utility Eskim remains a significant risk to the country's fiscal strength. The agency further adds that the unbundling of the power utility will do little to rescue the power utility. President Cyril Ramaphosa announced in a State of the Nation address that Eskim would be split into three divisions. It's facing a huge debt burden of almost $43 billion. Moody's has urged Eskim to look at job cuts as other alternatives to resolve its crisis. Moody's is the only major agency that still has South Africa on an investment-grade credit rating. Economists expect that South Africa's manufacturing output will have declined in December last year compared to November when Statistics South Africa releases data on Tuesday. Economist at Econometrics Laura Campbell says global trade tensions and a depressed domestic economy will weigh on the numbers. Campbell says electricity challenges may have further weakened demand for manufactured goods. The slackening off in global economic growth, um, which is in part due to the ongoing trade tensions between the U.S. and China, and this will have weighed down on the demand for manufactured exports from South Africa. Economic activity domestically also remains weak, which is also likely to have weighed down on the demand for manufactured goods. And then um, at the margin, um, the fact that load shedding was implemented in late November and continued into December may have also um, dampened the growth in manufacturing production. 
Libya's National Oil Corp says it's agreed with Spain-based Repsol to keep a force majeure on the Al-Sharara field, which produced well over 300,000 barrels per day, but stopped on December 10th. The oil field remains in the center of militia confrontations. In the latest OPEC reports, Libya saw a reduction of 172,000 barrels per day. According to OPEC data, the country produced around 817,000 barrels per day of crude oil in 2017. U.S. stocks opened higher on Monday as the latest round of talks between the world's largest economies began in Beijing. The Dow Jones rose 36.48 percent, rather points, while S&P 500 opened higher by 4.52 points. Meanwhile, the top four Democratic and Republican negotiators in the U.S. Congress on border security funding are scheduled to meet later on Monday in an attempt to reach a deal that would avert another government shutdown by Friday deadline. Negotiations broke down over the weekend over funding for immigrant detention beds and physical barriers that would be funded along the U.S.-Mexico border. Nestle, Unilever and Mondelez, some of the world's palm oil users, are trying out new satellite technology to track deforestation. This as pressure grows to source the ingredient responsibly. Reuters consumer correspondent Martin Geller has the details. Palm oil has been a bit of a dirty word for years, but consumer goods companies are under increasing pressure now from consumers who want more sustainably sourced products. One of the problems with this, they worry, is that by pinpointing where deforestation happens and by cutting those suppliers out of their supply chain, that there are other buyers in other more markets that will just buy that dirty palm oil. So you're not actually solving the problem, but just pushing it somewhere else. The U.S. dollar is trading at 359.23 Nigerian Naira, 10.26 Botswana Pula at 99.71 Kenyan Chilean and at 11.78 Zambian Kwacha. In BRICS currencies, one U.S. dollar will cost you 3.72 Brazilian Hale, 65.41 Russian Ruble, 71 Indian Rupee, 6.78 Chinese Yuan and at 13.58 South African Rand. The U.S. dollar is also trading at 77 pence to the British pound and at 88 cents to the euro. In commodities, gold is trading at $1,311 and platinum at $791 per ounce. The price of Brent crude oil is at $61.60 a barrel. For Channel African News, I'm Tracy Bumgard. Thank you very much, Tracy. Here's Neto Chemane with your sports news. Thank you, Spumelele. A very good evening to all sport fans. Starting with rugby news. 
The South African Rugby appeared before SA Human Rights Commission, SAHRC, today after a group of black Springbok fans reported alleged racial abuse during the rugby championship match between the Springboks and New Zealand last year. But the details of the meeting have been classified as confidential. SAHRC acting head of legal services, Buang Jones, confirmed that the meeting was attended by SA Rugby President Mark Alexander, Chief Executive Jury Rue, and Lungo CEO, one of the rugby fans who reported the matter to the commission. Pressed on timelines, Jones said an announcement would be made in a few months' time. CEO took SA Rugby to the SAHRC after they were allegedly racially abused at Loftus during the rugby championship match between the Springboks and New Zealand in October last year. On to football news. The launch of the 2019 Africa Five-A-Side football competition took place in Johannesburg on Monday afternoon. The tournament was first launched back in 2018. The Castle Lager Africa Five-A-Side has been dubbed Africa's biggest Five-A-Side tournament, which will be played in nine countries including Lesotho, South Africa, Swaziland, Tanzania, Zambia, Zimbabwe, Ghana, Nigeria and Uganda. The official ambassador for the tournament is Samuel Edo. Speaking through an interpreter, the four-time African Footballer of the Year says last year's tournament was unbelievable and is looking forward to what this year has in store. C'était déjà incroyable l'opportunité que Castellaga m'a donné de retrouver des, des coéquipiers qui ont écrit une très très belle histoire dans notre continent, dans ce que nous nous aimons faire le football. That was unbelievable last last year to be part of this campaign with all the all of the, the legends, African legends and all these Africans doing well for each country and it was, it was very happy for him to, to get this campaign last year. This year's tournament will also in, introduce a female division which will be spearheaded by former captain of South Africa's national women's football team Amanda Dlamini. It's a first of its kind and Dlamini says it is a great opportunity to improve the women's game on the African continent. Um, a first of its kind and uh, I think the biggest job for us is to try and really um, get everyone to grasp the idea of uh, women footballers playing in, in Africa fights because it's something that has never been heard before. So I think also Obospeer, they come into that uh, social cohesion of talking about it. So we need to make as much of a noise that we can in terms of um, encouraging women because it's always so difficult for us to, to get into a space where it's male-dominated. But I think with the quality and the support that we have from Castle, it will be so much easier going out there and really encouraging people not only to consume the brand but also be part of what they believe in and that is empowering women through sports. Chelsea manager Maurizio Sarri has apologised after his side's 6-0 defeat at Manchester City yesterday. City led 4-0 after 25 minutes as Chelsea lost their third straight away game, considering 12 goals without reply. The Blues have now slipped to sixth position in the English Premier League table, below Arsenal on goal difference. Sarri, who left Serie A side Napoli to take charge at Stamford Bridge last summer, was asked if he was concerned about his own future. I want to study, I want to understand, I'll do my best. I'll try that uh, the players uh, will do their best. Uh, For the moment I have to say only sorry, because in the last uh, three matches uh, away we we played uh, very badly, and so we need uh, to say sorry. And finally in tennis... 
Rising South African tennis star Lloyd Harris continues to climb up the ATP rankings ladder, having moved further two places in the latest rankings released today. The recent ATP challenger winner cracked the top 100 list for the first time last week and is in this week is now in 98th place in the standings. Kevin Anderson, who has maintained his fifth place, won ahead of Roger Federer from Switzerland, with Serbian Novak Djokovic still a top-ranked player in the world. Thank you for choosing Channel Africa. For Channel Africa Sport, I'm Neto and Ito Chemani. This is Africa Digest. It is 17.55 Central African Time right here on Africa Digest. Let's recap our top stories. Amnesty International says AU member states must ensure that Egypt's chairmanship does not undermine the continental body's human rights mechanisms. Zimbabwean teachers end their strike action despite failure by the government to meet any of their demands. With that, we wrap up Africa Digest for this hour. For myself, Pumela Lezwendi, producer, Luanda Mahomet, technical producer, Revelino Ibrahim, and the rest of the team. Thank you very much for listening.